So today's reading is from Hebrews, chapter thirteen, verses one to three. It's on page one thousand two hundred twelve of the Church Bible. Hebrews thirteen. Keep on loving one another with brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison, as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Um, let's just say a short prayer. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Three short verses. Well, this should be quick, shouldn't it? Hospitality. Yeah, this is a, a theme that runs through Scripture. And I've got absolutely no doubt that the writer of the book of Hebrews is encouraging the church to behave in this way. No doubt at all. But I have to say to you that if we are going to leave here thinking that all we need to be is a little bit hospitable, I think we've missed a lot of what this writer was trying to get across. Now, why do I say that? I say that because church is a community. A community of peculiar people. Peculiar people whose behavior is often not recognized or accepted by this world. Why? Because we carry the fingerprint of God. Our behavior is not dictated by the will of man or the social norms of the society that we're in, but by the will and the spirit of God. I want to try to get underneath the skin of these verses. And I'm going to do that by doing two things. To start off with, I'm going to tell you um, a story, it's about myself, um, about one of my many failings. And I'm going to use it to highlight some of the things that God would have us do, rather than some of the things that I do. And, and the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to, to talk to you and get a little bit of context going around the book of, of Hebrews. So that by the time we come to these three verses, we've got the full context of what's, what's going on by the time the end of this book is reached, chapter 13. So here's, here's my, my story. Um, and, and the context for this is, my family and I, we live in the countryside. Okay? And the countryside is harsh. And, what should I say? I mean, in the countryside, we don't have, we don't have many streetlights, for example. We, we have the moon. Okay, um, and you know we don't have lots of these 
footways at either side of the road. At best, those are intermittent in the rural areas. Now, in the countryside, we have a number of chickens. And one of these chickens, Bella, had nine chicks. And I became a very proud surrogate father of, uh, of some chicks. And I remember being very proud of these chicks, and I, and I set up um, a cage for them. It's a wire cage. Uh, it's one of those little pet settlers, about so big. And it's usually used for, for, you know, for a, a, a small dog and that sort of, um, sort of thing. And I filled it with some hay and some food and some uh, water. And I put Bella and her nine chicks in there. And over time, over a few weeks, they grew so big, Bella was no longer able to cover them with her body. And even when she spread her wings, she still couldn't cover them. They were, they were just getting too big. So the time came for me to move them all into the main chicken run in the backyard. Now, the chicken run in the backyard is quite a big structure, a big wooden structure. It's covered with chicken wire throughout to keep the chickens in. But inside are loads of shrubs, bushes, loads of dirt. The chickens can scratch away, finding lots of worms, bugs, all the rest of it. It is chicken heaven in the chicken run. Chicken heaven. So I set all of these chickens loose in the chicken run. And all of them were running around. All these nine chicks were running around, except one. One was looking quite sorry for herself. And so I looked quite closely at her, and I could see she only had one eye. No left eye. But it wasn't that. It's the fact that she wasn't moving much. Now, that's strange. That's strange because chicks are like little toys that you, when you wind them up, they just... They just don't stop moving. They just keep darting all over the place. This one wasn't moving. And I looked at this chick and I said to myself, I said, I said you're not going to be here tomorrow morning. You're not going to be here because the countryside is harsh. And that's just the way of the countryside. You, you are not going to be here. And sure enough, the next day when I came down, that chick wasn't there. But I mean, it wasn't there. There was no chick body, no nothing. I couldn't find the chick anywhere. So I looked under a couple of bushes, a couple of shrubs. No chick. Anyway, I said to myself, look, I, I can't spend all day looking for dead chicks. Uh, I've got things to do. I've got people to meet. I'm an important person myself, you know. So I went off and I did my, my business, went, went away. And I came back the next day to my chicks looking forward to seeing all eight of my chicks. Count my chicks. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven chicks. Where's the eighth chick? Where's the eighth chick? I can't understand. Where's the eighth chick gone? I remember thinking to myself, what on earth is happening? And the strange thing is this. Nobody. You know, I, I, if I could see that something had killed my chick... I could understand that. But there's no chick body. Is it hiding? Where is it? Anyway, I can't stand here around you counting chicks all day. I've got things to do, people to meet. And I'm an important person myself. 
So I went off and I did my own thing. And I came back the next day and said hello to my chicks. I counted my chicks. One, two, three, four, five. Five chicks? Now, something is going on. Something is not right. And at this stage, I gather all five chicks like a father hen, if there was a father hen, like a father hen, and put my chicks into the cage that they started off life in. I put water in there, put food in there. And I said, nothing's going to get you now. Nothing's going to trouble you now. And then I went away, did whatever I needed to do. The next day was Sunday morning. And I remember it because I was dressed for church. I was dressed in my suit, as I normally am. And I thought, I'll just pop into the chicken run and check that these chicks are doing okay. I go down to the chicken run. I go to the bottom of the chicken run, to the cage that I put them in. And what do I find? I find three living chicks and two dead chicks still in the cage. Now I know what this is. This is a rat. It's a dirty rat. And this rat has found a taste for chicken. So now I'm worried because now I've got to sort out this this rat because if I don't, I will literally have no chicks left. But what can I do right now? I can't do anything much. I, I, I'm going to church. The only thing I can do is let the, the three living chicks out. And so I left the two dead chicks in the cage. Well, look, it's the countryside, okay? It's, the countryside's harsh. So I left the two dead chicks in the cage. And, and this is the crux of the story. I came in and I sat about there and I listened to Steve preaching. And any of you that know me know that I really enjoy a good sermon. I enjoy being taught. And Steve was giving a very good sermon. And I was concentrating on his sermon and then this horror image flashed in front of my eye. The two dead chicks. I saw them half eaten in front of my eye. And it was horrific. I actually remember shuddering. And, and, and it threw me, and the concentration went away from Steve's sermon and onto this image, trying to shift this image out of my mind. When I managed to get myself sorted out, again, I'm concentrating back on Steve's sermon, suddenly a thought comes to me. Do you know, you've left those three chicks completely vulnerable. They've got no chance against this killer rat. No chance. I, I bring myself to, and I, I, I concentrate again on Steve's sermon. And another thought comes to me. You know something? I remember. I remember going down to the bottom of the garden, down to where the chicken run is, and seeing a rat run from out of underneath the bush. Now I see what that rat was doing. It was actually waiting to ambush the chicks. The unsuspecting chicks. And what it was doing was taking the chicks out of the chicken run, out through a rat run that's created, into a nice peaceful area where it could enjoy its Kentucky. At my expense, by the way. So now I'm thinking, I've got to do something. And I'm in and out. I'm in and out of the sermon. 
I'm listening to Steve's sermon, and I'm and then I'm back out of it. And I'm in, and I'm out, and I'm in, and out. And I didn't, any blessing that I might have got from Steve's sermon that day was completely missed for me. Because I was worried. I was worried about some chicks. Some silly chicks that are barely worth anything. Now forward, fast forward a few weeks, about three or four weeks later, Ben Cook emails me and says, can you preach? I said, yes, no, no problem. I can preach on that date, no problem. And afterwards, I look at the verses, and they're these verses. And the thought that struck me at that point was this. When I read about what this writer was expecting of his church, the thought that hit me was, Basil, wouldn't it be powerful if the concern that you showed for those chicks, you showed for your brothers and sisters in church. That was the thought that hit me. I want you to hold that thought. Hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. For now I want to just focus on this book. Book of Hebrews. And I, and I, I want to just firstly focus on the audience the audience for this book they're Christian but they are predominantly Jewish and the, and the Jewish people are filled with history a richness and pride in their heritage every festival that they have is a reminder of some aspect of their history even the objects in their house many of them are a connection with God, a reminder of some incident that's gone on with God. This is a proud people, a people proud of their heritage. But this is also a knowledgeable people, a people that know a lot about their history. Even as children, they're taught to recite long passages of Scripture, remember them, recite them. They know about some of the stories, some of the traditions. So these are people with a strong sense of, of knowledge about the Scripture, but also a strong sense of who they are. Now let's just spend a few minutes just thinking about the text that's in this book. Now, clearly this is a letter. This is a letter, but it doesn't start like many of the letters that we, that we read. For a start, we're not told who the author is. And the next thing that's interesting is there's no words of sort of thanksgiving and, and prayer for, for, the, for the church at the beginning. It's interesting. It starts slightly differently. It goes straight into gospel teaching. Straight in. The next thing you notice when you read the book of Hebrews is you notice that the writer has some knowledge, some personal knowledge of what has gone on with that particular church. He writes about things like some of the, the, their number falling away from the faith. He writes about some of them who have lost property, who, have, who, who are in prison. Why are they in prison? They are in prison. They have lost property because they have dared to keep the faith. They have dared to be different and carry the fingerprint of God. But here's the thing. 
all the way through these scriptures, there are lots and lots of references to the Old Testament. Old Testament scripture is peppered throughout this. And there are many references to things like the Israel's priesthood, sacrifice, the tabernacle. And there are various quotes from the book of Psalms. And then you get to the middle of this letter, chapter 7. And something interesting happens. The writer brings in this character called Melchizedek. Now you might remember, any of you who know a bit about your Old Testament, might remember that Melchizedek is this king, but but also a high priest who blesses Abraham. And Abraham, strangely, pays him a tithe, a tenth of what he gains from a battle that he's had. And then, the strange thing that the the writer starts doing is saying there's something peculiar about this person. And and, and incidentally, Melchizedek is a a strange person person that happens in, in, in Genesis 14, because unlike every other character in Genesis, they all have a genealogy attached to them. So Noah is born, he lives so many years, and then he dies. Ham is born, he lives so many years, and then he dies. Every single person is born, lives so many years, and then he dies. But that's not what happens with Melchizedek. It's, there's no genealogy attached to him. Now, I don't think that means that he hasn't got a genealogy, just means there's no record of it here. But what the writer then goes to do, he goes on to explain, look, his name is actually quite significant. His name, Melchizedek, Melech Zedek. In Hebrew, Melech means king. Zedek means righteousness. King of righteousness. He goes on to say, look, also, his kingdom. He's the king of Salem. Salem comes from the word shalom. In Hebrew, shalom means peace. He's the king of peace. So let's just understand this. This is the king of righteousness, and his kingdom is peace. Does that remind you of anybody? Are you starting to think about anybody? Well, he doesn't stop there. The writer doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain that you know your great father, Abraham, the, the, the greatest of the patriarchs. This man, Melchizedek, was paid a tithe to him. A tithe is what you pay to the priesthood. What the Israelites would have pay, paid to the, the Levites to sustain them. Well, their father Abraham paid a tithe, a tenth of what he had, to Melchizedek. Now, that's interesting. And the reason that the the, the writer says that this is interesting is because he says Melchizedek is not a Levite. Now, that's interesting because they know that high priests have got to come from the Levite tribe. Got to come from the Levite tribe. But Melchizedek doesn't. But Melchizedek is such a high priest, so important, he is able to bless their father, Abraham. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on 
And he explains that Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi either. Jesus is actually from the tribe of Judah. He, therefore, is of the same order of Melchizedek. He is the same sort of priest that doesn't come from Levi, but so important. But he is even more important than Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek is just a shadow of what was going to come in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ is still there in heaven, intercessing on your behalf as high priest. This is really deep theological stuff. And it's a beautiful piece of theology. Absolutely beautiful. And it's one that you can only engage in if you've got a bit of understanding of Old Testament history. And the writer goes all the way through his book, his, his letter, writing like this, getting some real theological discussion going, explaining how the Old Testament is referenced in to the New Explaining the correct understanding of what's in the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in the New. So my question to you is this. Do you think all of these references that are happening throughout this letter are accidental? No, I don't think they are. They are done purposefully by this, by this writer. Because he understands Old Testament scripture, and he knows his audience understands Old Testament scripture. But what he wants is to bring them into a right understanding of that Old Testament scripture. So all the way through Hebrews, there are these Old Testament um, references to New Testament gospel um, explanations. The writer is recognizing the audience's deep sense of history and tradition and knowledge. And he says to them, your tradition... It's still relevant, but it's just a foretaste of what was to come in Jesus Christ. It's not that there's no need for a, a high priest. There's very much a need for a high priest. It's just that the true high priest is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's not that there's no need for sacrifice. There's very much need for sacrifice. Our sins need to be covered. It's just that it is properly covered with this one sacrifice that was made through Jesus Christ, for all mankind. And it goes on like this, writing all the way through this book. The point I'm making is that every point that he makes is purposefully done. Christ says, when you read the book of Hebrews, you recognize that this is written in a radical era. An era where minds needed to be changed, transformed about the way they thought about their history, the way they thought about their teachings, the way that worship associated with the tabernacle was thought about. The Jews' mind and thinking needed to be transformed about how they thought about sacrifice, how they thought about accessing the Lord God Almighty. These teachings in this book are radical. They're rooted in the Old Testament and linked with gospel teachings of the New. And they're deep. And I don't think the verses, in verses 1 to 3 of, of chapter 13, I don't think they're any less radical, any less rooted in the Old Testament or the New Testament teachings. 
I don't think they're any less deep. And it's in that context, in that context, I want us to read verses 1 to 3. Are you all still with me? Yeah? You're still with me. I haven't lost you. Okay. Just before these, these three short verses, chapter 12 ends by the, the writer reminding the church the need to serve God. They need to serve God. And how do they do serve God? Then you, then you get these verses 1 to 3. So about how do you serve God? How do you serve an awesome God? Well, firstly, keep, in, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. A key theme in both Old Testament and New Testament scripture. To love one another. Love your God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. A key theme. All the teachings in the Old Testament really try to explain this. And the teachings of Jesus Christ. His teachings are very clear. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. This writer the writer of the Hebrews, knows his scripture. He knows his Old Testament scripture and he knows his New Testament teachings. And he is making it very, very clear that everything we do is rooted in scripture. Rooted in Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament um, gospel. And what, does serving, what else does serving God involve? Well, it seems that it involves doing some not-so-very-British things. Entertaining strangers. Entertaining strangers. Now, overward, can I just maybe look at it this way? People of the faith that you don't know, entertaining those people. How often do we come to church and we actually uh, talk to people that we know or that we like? And someone that we're not so sure of, we just keep away. How many times does that happen? I wonder. That's not what's being talked about here. But, but he goes on to say, and these are interesting words, for by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now I wonder, given what we know about this writer, about his knowledge of Old Testament. Do you think it has escaped his notice that Abraham, the father of the faith, faith in Genesis chapter 18, entertains three men? Three men that turn out not to be men at all. Do you think it's escaped his notice? Do you think he doesn't know that when he writes these words? I think he knows. And I think what's more, his audience knows. His audience knows. And then, he explains the need to remember those in prison. Now, I think this starts to become deeply personal. This, the writer has mentioned in the writings that there are some of the number that have been sent to prison. Sent to prison for their faith. 
So this is deeply personal to this particular church. And he says to continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them. As if you were together with them. Okay, I'm going to just, let's just try, let's just try this for a minute. Just humor me for a little bit. I want you to, in your mind's eye, imagine what it might have been like 2,000 years ago in a Near East prison. I imagine the conditions wouldn't be so good. But imagine one of your number, one of your brothers has been taken and put into shackles and imprisoned in one of those prisons. Imagine what he looks like. I imagine somebody who's looking quite drawn. The food is not particularly good, if any. The water is probably a little dirty. So he's probably quite sick. He's probably pretty thin. He's probably beaten. He's a Christian in jail, and there won't be much sympathy for a Christian there. Maybe he's even got a wound, a bad wound that won't heal, a wound from one of the guards just injuring him, abusing him. Maybe he smells really, really bad. Imagine him. Imagine him in your mind's eye. He smells bad. He has probably sat in his own urine, his own feces for, for days, weeks. His clothes are in tatters. Can you see him? The writer says that you are to remember him as if you were in prison together with him. Can you imagine what that must mean to do that? To imagine that you are in prison with him. To feel the pain that he's feeling. To feel the hunger that he's feeling. To feel the loneliness that he might be feeling. And to pray him up so that God's own angels might minister to him. Can you imagine feeling the pain of that person? This is the sort of thing that the writer is asking his church to do. It isn't simply hospitality. Hospitality is important, of course it is. But it's so much more than that. Because the church is so much more than that. The church is a community. It's a community of peculiar people. Peculiar people whose behavior is not accepted or recognized by this world. Why? Because they carry the fingerprint of God. They carry the fingerprint of God. And these people in this church have lost property because they dared to carry the fingerprint of God. These people have been put in prison because they dared to carry the fingerprint of God. Christ Church, I tell you, anybody can be kind. Anybody can be hospitable. But this writer is asking for more than that. He's asking for this congregation to be a community, to be one. 
and, re- and feel the pain of others. Love them so much that you feel their pain. Okay, look, that's, that's 2,000 years ago. That's in the Near East. What's, that, what's the relevance of it to me today? Well, just like 2,000 years ago, church is still a community. A community of peculiar people. But let me tell you what I think might sometimes happen to us. Sometimes. And, and can I just say, I am guilty of this as well. Sometimes this is what it's become. This is what church has become. You roll up for church on time. Sometimes not on time. You sing a few songs. You drift in and out of the sermon. As you sometimes concentrate on what's really important back home or at work. And at the end of the service, you, you exchange a few pleasantries with a few people that you know, that you like. And then off you go home. I have to tell you, that's not the church that this writer was talking about. He was not talking about that. And if you think that that is church, that you come and you drift in and you listen, you go in and out of the sermon and you go home, that's not church. That's not the community that God is trying to build. So I thought to myself, what if? What if I was was willing to love my brothers and sisters so much, so much that I was willing to be hospitable to them? I've seen you once or twice, but I don't know you. I don't know you very well. And I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to come to my house, share a meal with us, share a meal with my, my family? Would you be willing to come and break bread with us, have a chat, have some prayers? Would you be willing to do that? Would you? Don't feel forced. Don't feel under pressure. Okay? You can say no. Okay? I would love for you to do that. I'd love to see you there. That's a strange thing for us to do. Someone we don't know. Someone we don't know. Yeah? I see you around a lot. But I don't know you. Could I invite you? Could you would you come and share a meal with us? Would you? Yeah? I'd love for you to do that. And I open that invitation to all of you. I would love to invite you. Now, this is not... A socially normal thing to do. Because it's not very British, is it? But maybe, maybe God isn't very British. (laughs) We've got to be careful. Because it's very, very easy for us to fall into ways of behavior that's accepted socially. Rather than looking at what God's word says and actually playing that out. We've got to be careful. It is easy to be hospitable, nice, pleasant, because actually, in this society, that's an accepted norm. Yeah? We don't do it because it is an accepted norm. We do it because the Spirit in us drives us, compels us to do these things. Do you see the difference? What if? 
What if I loved you, my brothers and sisters, so much that I, I was so concerned about what was going on in your life? The last time we spoke, you told me about, I know, some difficulties you were having in your marriage. Maybe you told me about some difficulties you were having with health. And I was praying for these things for you. And I took the concern that I had for my chicks and I rolled it up and I put it into concern for you. And everything that I put my effort into was about making sure that things were okay for you. And all my prayers were going up for you. And every help that I was trying to give was about helping you. Now, if I was doing those things, if I was doing those things, then all of a sudden, I would be part of a community. A community of peculiar people. People whose behavior is not understood or accepted by this world. Why? Because I would at that point be carrying the fingerprint of God. And then I thought, what if? What if every single one of us did the same? What if every single one of us behaved like that? Because that is what this writer is asking for. If every one of us behaved like that, then all of a sudden, Christchurch, we are a community. But not just any old community, a community of peculiar people whose behavior is strange to this world. Why? Because then we carry the fingerprint of God. And what does the fingerprint of God look like? Well, it looks an awful lot like love. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is true. And Lord, it is our honor to come before you in worship. But Lord, we desire to do more, to learn more, to be more for you. We pray that you would awaken our souls, our spirits, to, to do the work that you would have us do, to be the community that you would have us be. Give us the strength. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to do your work. Amen. Amen. Oh, incidentally, I didn't tell you about what happened to the rat, did I? Just quickly tell you what happened to the rat. I caught the rat. If I didn't catch the rat, I wouldn't have any more chicks. Um, the rat, it wasn't as sinister or evil as I was expecting. It's, it had the roundest, wettest eyes you could ever imagine on a rat. And so, you know, in the end, my, my heart was moved with compassion for this rat. Can you believe this ratness? Rat that's killed a load of my chicks. Uh, but don't get anything twisted. The, the, the rat's not with us anymore. Um, the, uh, the, I mean, it's, it's the countryside, you see. The countryside is, uh, is harsh. It's very, very harsh. God bless you.